Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Sorry, I put a weird emphasis on this. You really did. I, don't, I just got carried away in the moment. I have heat stroke. Let's emphasize this. What is it? It's a podcast where we are the electrolytes in a regular <laughs> bottle of water, making it a whole new thing. Gatorade. Gatorade. <laughs> is it better for you? Yes. Maybe not, but we love it. And it's blue. And it's got a flavor. Anyway, Ashley, who are we thinking this week? This week, I would like to thank Solo Stove. Upgrade your backyard with a Solo Stove fire pit and create story-worthy moments without the fireside fumes. Right now, you can get big discounts on all fire pits during Solo Stove's summer sale and use the promo code WORM at solostove.com for an extra $10 off. And thank you to Credit Karma for supporting our show. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Claire. Yes. If you were to personalize, say, a book. Yes. Write it about your life. Yes. Perhaps a memoir. What would you title last week's chapter? Settling back into where we started. Okay. I feel like on both the wedding front and the professional front, I had a real roller coaster of emotions last week and just feeling like frustrated and angry and feeling like things should be better than they are. Or I'm not going to blah, blah, blah. I don't know. You know how just sometimes you get in your head and you just start spiraling out of control. And I feel like I had a couple of really constructive conversations with friends. One with Dua Lipa, my friend. <laughs> That helped me remember like stay the course, it's all going fine. I feel like I was getting out of control with like wedding planning and I had completely abandoned my initial outline and now I'm back where I started. I remembered what my agenda was and what the MO was. So I feel good about going right back to where I began. And then also I'm feeling very grateful for all the worms in the world. And I just think, you know, sometimes I have a problem with getting lost in the sauce. I feel like I have a real strong gut instinct. You always are so sure of what you want and exactly how you want it. And then you listen to one person talk and then it opens the floodgates to like every fucking idea that exists on the planet. Mm -hmm. And then if the Lord is able, he guides you back to your original thought. But that's why, I mean, Mac makes fun of me because I need to look at the menu for a restaurant I'm going to that night. But it's literally because if I don't spend my whole day focusing on what I want to <laughs> eat on my way to the Italian restaurant, I will see tacos and get so distracted by tacos that I'll like be in tears if I have to eat pasta that <laughs> night. So I need to laser focus my eyeballs into something and just remember what the end game is and what the goal is. And I feel like I needed to like remember the mission statement of both my life and my wedding and proceed along that pathway and not get diverted. But it's Freaking distracting out there. And I have ADD bad. Ashley. Yes. What would your chapter of last week's memoir be? I don't even know if there would have been a chapter. It melted. I like haven't been able to think of any words or phrases. I feel like my brain turned from like a hard jelly, like a gummy bear into just like a soft wishy-washy jelly. And I have to like plug my ears when I turn my head. So my jelly brains don't fly out of my ears. I don't even know what's going on. All I know is that I'm hot and I'm dying. <laughs> oh my God. I hope everybody in Europe was okay. I know it was really brutal last week and our hearts are with you. Yeah. I've been trying to do like adult tasks and it, it has been really hard to motivate myself to do more than like half of a thing per day because it's so hot outside. No, it's nauseating outside. And if we had any class, we would just be taking naps for like 48 straight hours. But <laughs> unfortunately we live in hell. Anyway, should we get into this week's memoirist, someone with nothing but class? I have to make a statement up top because as a journalist, you guys know, first and foremost, I'm telling you the unbiased news. I need to make an amendment about my own personal biases. I do not know who Danielle Bernstein is. And why I don't know her is because in the summer of 2000, 
I want to say 15, maybe uh-huh. even 2016, a friend was telling me about We Wore What, the Instagram account. And I went to We Wore What's page. I couldn't find her. I said, oh, she must have deleted her account. And then I like back-ended, found her somehow. And I said, oh my God, she has no posts. She must have deleted all her posts. And my friend goes, what are you talking about? There's no way she deleted her post. She takes my phone from me and goes, oh my God, you've been blocked. I had been blocked by Danielle Bernstein of We Wore What fame in the summer of 2016, having never once in my life heard of her previously. I have no reason to back up this claim. There's literally no reason for me to feel this way. But if you are a lady We're talking out about there, trusting your guts. Yeah. If you are out there as a woman, you know that sense of like, oh, my ex cheated on me with this girl. You know when you just fucking know and there's like literally no reason for you to know it. But I was just like, why else on the planet would she have blocked me? It felt like it was in his ballpark of it just like, I, there's no reason for me to think this. I just, right. in my heart, that is what I believe. I don't know her. I've never met her. I can't even look at her. If you sent me her post, it would be unavailable. This is my first foray into Danielle Bernstein, except for, of course, I watched her get canceled on TikTok last year. But I do want you guys to know, take what I say with a grain of salt because that is my experience of her. Okay, so I want to back up even further. Sure. And explain who Danielle Bernstein of We Wore What is because I do think the majority of our listeners won't know. We got loosey-goosey with what a celebrity memoir is this week. Can I week. say loose on celebrity, but like high on no. I think she is yeah. the Caroline Calloway of the fashion world. I think she is one of the least liked influencers. I agree with that. And I think that she's like a very interesting case because, okay, so as we know, I worked in the fashion blogosphere for a brief stint. And when I worked at Man Repeller, we were what Danielle Bernstein's Instagram account and I guess blog yes. was just behind us in terms of following. Man Repeller hit 2 million followers while I was working there. And I believe she was at like 1.7 or 1.8 million around that time, but nobody mentioned her. You could not mention her in the office. It wasn't this like enemies aura. It was this like, we don't disrespect the brand by mentioning someone that trash. That was like the vibe that I was picking up. And once again, maybe my gut was wrong in the same way that you had your gut feeling. This was my gut feeling because I couldn't mention her. There was this feeling of like, you just don't talk about it because there was other fashion bloggers that we talked to. There was other people we would reach out to, to collaborate with, to have in our stories, to have whatever with. But I don't know. There was something about her that like you just did not touch with a 10 foot pole. And I think the general consensus was that she was just like a Long Island girl who had access to fancy clothes, who just posted them like she was a fashion person and people in like middle America bought it. Well, I think the other consensus was that she bought all of her followers. Yes, that too. She bought the clothes. She bought the followers. Eventually brands were like, well, we're not smart enough to really decipher this. And I do think in the Caroline Calloway rubric, she was one of the early adopters, not of Instagram, but of the buying followers to trick brands into thinking you were more important than you are, which then of course it's like a self foot failing prophecy. It's a positive feedback cycle. Because then people see that a brand is working with this influencer. They assume that influencer is legit. So then they follow that influencer potentially for a period of time. And then more brands work with that influencer. So this book written by Danielle Bernstein is called This Is Not a Fashion Story, which I will tell you off the top, I would have guessed. I think she thinks this is the story of a girl who made it in fashion. I mean, it, it low-key is, but is. like... What's higher fashion than bulk buying your own Macy's collection? That's true. That's the industry, baby. I also want to say, if you go to her Instagram right now, I think she has 2.9 million followers. Yes. And her posts are averaging about 5,500 likes. That's abysmal. So this is not a fashion story. Taking chances, breaking rules, and being a boss in the big city. 
Let's begin. So Danielle Bernstein was born May 28th, 1992, which makes her almost exactly my age. Yeah. She's six months older than me. I would say she's like just under one year younger than me. This book came out in 2020. And when she wrote it, she was 27, she says. Prime time to write a book when you've done a handful of other things. So every chapter in this book is a lesson. I believe there are 23 or 24. 27. 27. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. A lesson per year. I see what you did there, Danielle. You're not more clever than me. (laughs) 27 lessons, but she starts with an introduction called Let's Rewind. And this is where she explains why she decided to write this book. She was spending a summer single as a Pringle and she woke up in bed next to an absolute smoke show. And she was like, God, I am like Samantha Jones of Sex and the City fame. She says, I like to call those months my Samantha Summer, so named after Kim Cattrall's legendary character on Sex and the City. Thank you for explaining. Samantha Jones lived and loved freely. She got what she wanted and what's more, she refused to apologize for wanting it. I don't know who the Venn diagram of people that know we were what would be that wouldn't have heard of Sex and the City. Because we were what is like, you know how low-end brands will go to high-end stores and steal designs and then bring it back and make the shitty version? That is her life. Her life is like sanitized Carrie Bradshaw for the masses. Yes, it really is. And she spent a summer just really fucking around and thinking like, I have a lot of raunchy stories that people might want to hear. I should write these down and call it a book. She goes, I was addicted to writing. I had already transcribed an additional four sexcapades while on the West Coast. Stories that detailed the various men and experiences in my 23 years of life. I'm sorry. That's not a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And so she had sent them to a friend and a friend was like, you cannot publish this. Everyone will think you're a slut. And she was worried. She said, it seemed as if my sexual liberation, if made public, would have labeled me a slut and potentially even ruined my career. Only now, years later, do I realize what a load of bullshit this all was. I am not a slut, never have been, never will be. I'm actually a serial monogamist who prefers to be in long-term relationships. It's only in between those boyfriends that I've given myself the freedom to explore casual sex. I love that. She's like, call me a slut. I'm not a slut. I have boyfriends. And then between those boyfriends, I fuck around. It's like, that is just like the definition of how people be (laughs) but also it's so funny that she's like my friend called me a slut and it's not like and I don't believe in that a woman's allowed to have sex she's like and I'm not that I'm not that there are sluts in the world and I'm not one of them I'm not one of them I actually have long and fruitful relationships and then between them I'm what one might confuse for a slut which is a word I do believe exists (laughs) so then she goes on to explain that growing up she was always obsessed with clothes she says Back then, my only goal was to eventually live in Manhattan to be one of the glamorous people living in a glamorous place. I taught myself how to binge watch Sex in the City while my mom was out of the house. How do you learn to binge watch? I think it's a character trait inherent in all of us. Anyway, so she talks about how she grew up in Long Island, textbook suburbia, upper middle class, and she says it was boring and that's what inspired her to want a more interesting life. I Okay, here's the thing is I don't know what world she is a part of because she seems to like not really understand being rich, but also not understand being middle class or poor in this way where I'm like, who are you explaining your life to? Because the references you're pulling make no sense. She goes, years later at the tender age of 19, I finally moved to New York. I found an apartment in Greenwich Village, but this was not the adorable studio of my dreams. For years, I lived in a cramped one bedroom with not one, but three other girls. Like she was in college. You either live in a dorm room or if you live in New York, you live in a dorm-esque room. And then she talks about, I spent a lot more time shopping in bodegas than at Balenciaga, more time riding the A train than in black cars. Like, yeah. Why would you be shopping at Balenciaga as often as you'd shop in a bodega? This book was (laughs) written for 12-year-olds. I mean, it's all name-dropping. It's all hype. It's all inauthentic. 
not vulnerable. It's just cachet word after cachet word. Very much written in the style of the click books or in the style of Gossip Girl. Yeah. Every adjective that should have a lowercase is a proper noun. It's not tight jeans. It's seven jeans. It's not my beautiful boyfriend. It's my finance boyfriend. This is a perfect example of the sentence. She says, sometimes my version of manhabitation, which is living in Manhattan, includes star-studded events at Cipriani. And sometimes it includes binging The Bachelor on my living room floor. While reading this book, I need you to picture the latter to pretend that we're at home on my cozy Timothy Olton couch eating Who chocolate and skinny pop popcorn, gabbing and sweating pants while I beg my dog to stop pumping your arm. So the fact that she needed to name a couch brand, a chocolate brand, a popcorn brand to tell you that she's relatable and sometimes sits in her apartment and watches TV. I believed you. If you told me that some nights you like to stay in, I would have been like, believable. (laughs) She says, this is not a fashion story, but it's not not a fashion story. It's just the story of a young woman who shed her suburban roots to forge her own path in the concrete jungle of New York City. It's my story and I'm telling it my way. When I tell you as a fellow tri-state area B&T bridge and tunnel transplant from an upper middle class white background, this is the story. This is the least interesting story in the world. This is all of us. This is what you were bred to do. Nobody stays on Long Island in their 20s. They go to Manhattan. They get their little boyfriend. They go back out to Long Island. I mean, this is not a forging of the path. This is the destiny that you were given as your birthright to your parents. But she wants you to know that it wasn't easy, okay? She says, I worked my Pilates toned ass off to launch this business, but there are also many external reasons why we were what was a success. I mean... To be like, listen, I worked hard. She like had to make that sentence unlikable. For what? <laughs> Critics like to say that I was in the right place at the right time. And while it's true, Lady Luck has been on my side. She's only part of the reason why we were what has prospered. My business succeeded because it's authentic. You I guys, I would like you to do a deep dive on, I don't know, just look at one image that she's ever posted. <laughs> Here's the thing is if it seems like we're being haters, it is because Danielle Bernstein is well known in the industry for stealing every idea she's ever had from people. From a lot of small independent designers, a lot of BIPOC owned design brands. I mean, and then she also photoshops the shit out of her own body. I mean, and then she'll complain about the way that like the industry puts a lot of pressure on you to be thin. And it's just like, I don't know, man, then stand up to something. We will do our Patreon this week on the reasons people have gotten mad at her. She's famous for buying out her own clothing line to make it seem like it's sold. This book itself, she calls herself a New York Times bestseller. I looked it up. This book was on the bestsellers list in the business book category with a dagger of death, which implies she mass purchased her own book in order to make the bestsellers list and still only managed to make the business category. Anyway. If we sound like haters, it's because we are. I fucking can't stand this bitch. Send her in right now. Send her to this room. I'll have a talk with her. I have no option. Send her this episode. I don't care. I, from this book, don't have a problem with her. I'm just like in awe. This book reads like, you know how people get mad at TikTok influencers and Instagram influencers for glamorizing and romanticizing their life in New York City and never showing the hard part, making everything seem like it's just getting an ice latte at Andre Deon Lore or what is it called? I don't know. Amy... Amy Leon Dor. I don't go to Manhattan. I don't know, you guys. I'm not cool. That, right? I'm not a dime square girl. I think it's like I'm I don't know, man. I don't know because I can't afford it and so I don't go. But <laughs> <laughs> my point is I know it's very cool and the girls are all at San Ambrose and they're all at their Soho stuff. She lived that life, put it on Instagram, looked at her Instagram and then believed her own hype. Yeah. Like, I think she has brainwashed herself into thinking that her reality is her Instagram feed, which is kind of an impressive thing to watch. 
Yeah. So there's this really interesting TikTok that I have referenced a couple times, I think, on the Patreon that I keep crediting to old loser in Brooklyn on TikTok. And I tried to find the video today and I don't actually know if she's the one who said it. But the original group of influencers were people who led lives that people thought were interesting. And they were like, well, that's a cool girl. She's leading a cool life. I want to know also what that cool girl is putting in her cool hair, what she's wearing, what she's doing. Like there were people with jobs, like an editor at Vogue or an artist or something interesting that then also wore cool shit and like wanted to know about it. They didn't exist to sell you things. And so the current era of influencer is obviously the exact opposite. It's someone who exists to sell things. They become successful and like well-known based on the way they're selling you things well. And then they just keep selling you things. It's hauls. It's nothing but get ready with me's. And I think that she helped kick that off. Like I think she was one of the earlier influencers who had nothing to offer, but she tries to claim that she like was writing about clothes and had thoughts on clothes. She doesn't have a sense of fashion. She was the one who was just constantly regurgitating new outfits every day. And that was the appeal. If there was an appeal, I still don't know if anyone organically followed her. Lesson one is keep calm and carry on. And it's literally just about how she went to summer camp, a Jewish overnight camp. And there she met her first boyfriend. It turned out they lived two towns from each other. So when they got back for their, her freshman year of high school, they kept dating. And October 26th of that year, they decided to lose their virginity to each other. It went quick. The next day she thought she was pregnant. So she tells her mom and her mom says, all right, then she said laughing, you better get your pregnant tush in the car. So then her mom takes her to get plan B because she's like obsessed with thinking she's pregnant. She goes, it's funny. I would have thought the most important thing about losing my virginity would have been the actual penis and vagina. And the fact that I lost it to a loving boyfriend on my terms. And while sure, that was pretty epic milestone. What I remember most about that day is my mom's behavior, how she was able to set her own undeniably complicated emotions aside in order to be there and support me. To this day, I think about my mom whenever I'm faced with challenging news from a friend, employee, or a lover. I channel her understanding and her calm. Why? Because then that person won't hesitate to come to me in the future because anger is never or almost never the right reaction. So the point of this chapter is just that she had a boyfriend and they had sex and then nothing bad happened. Which I mean, great. Happy for you. Okay. She says that an editor told her she wasn't allowed to have a chapter about her bat mitzvah. And I guess she just would have told us everything about everything. Like, I don't think she has a sense that any part of her life isn't deeply interesting. Did anything in this book seem worthy of putting in a book to you? She had a couple things she almost told us and then said, but out of respect for privacy, I'm not going to tell you. So this next chapter is about her parents' divorce, where her parents sit them down. They say, we're getting a divorce. And then her dad moves out. She's like super upset about it, cries all the time. And then her dad moves back in and then moves back out again. And then her parents are like, okay, yeah, we're officially, this is real. We're getting a divorce. Being in a relatively small suburb of just 10,000 residents, Great Neck is the perfect place to raise your children if you're looking for idyllic safety. But it's also one of the worst places if you're trying to avoid gossip. Everyone knows everyone's business, especially when the people at the heart of the scandal are the innocuous Bernsteins with their three all-star children and two adorable pups. She talks about herself the way a third-person narrator would talk about a fake teenage girl that she wanted you to be jealous of. The way that this is written, like Claire and Maisie from The Click. Like, it really is like... The Connecticut family with everything in tow. The daughter was a soccer star and the son was the captain of the football team. They had it all, so we thought. But you can't talk about yourself that way. What do you mean you were three all-star children? Anyway, so in terms of not telling us everything in terms of privacy, she alludes to the fact that her dad was cheating on her mom, but she won't actually say it. She talks about begging her mom for answers, like why you can't work it out. Please, you have to just tell me what's going on. But she won't actually tell us what her mom says. She just later talks about infidelity and how it has affected her since her 
So the whole chapter is leading up to her eavesdropping on her mom, begging her mom to know. And then finally, when she's 18, her mom tells her what happened. And then she goes, out of respect for my family's privacy, I won't get into the details. But what I will say is this. My dad was and continues to be a great father. But as a spouse, he had room to grow. And it's like, all right, Danielle. Then tell us the fucking details. You were on your hands and knees weeping to your mom and you thought that that, the weeping was the important part of the story. I don't give a fuck. (laughs) Yeah, she does say, can I trust men? Should my mom really be telling me this? Why didn't I just leave things alone? This is my favorite line, I think, in the first half of the book. She goes, more than 10 years later, I'm still actively working to heal the wounds of my parents' divorce. I have devastating trust issues. I am sorry. You know, both me and Claire are not children of divorce. So I guess I don't know that I can fully relate. But I do think that in the era that we're from, I don't know. If you're like numero uno traumas that your parents got divorced, but then still remained like active and loving parents in your life... I don't know that I care that much. I'm sorry. I know that that's insensitive. I think that your job as an author is to make people care. Yeah. And I guess to have this whole chapter leading up to this great reveal that then you don't tell us and then to quickly (laughs) siphon it off with just that one sentence about the fallout and then never follow up again, it doesn't make you care. And especially if you're not somebody who's overly sympathetic to begin with. Yeah. I do think there are people out there who could make it interesting. She did not. And she didn't even try because she refuses to show herself in anything other than a perfect state. Yeah. Everything is like, but I'm great now. Anyway, so now we're talking about the finances of her upbringing, which were pretty healthy, pretty stable. Yeah. She has that line compared to the rest of the world. I had an extremely privileged upbringing. My dad had the same great job then that he has now as chief operating officer of a large staffing and recruitment agency in Manhattan. And her mom was a stay at home mom. Obviously, when they got divorced, things kind of tightened down a bit because now they had to hold down two entire homes for people. She was then (laughs) cut down to having only four shopping outings a year. One per season. She was given an amount of money from her mother that is undisclosed that she was allowed to go to the mall with and buy all of her clothes for the season. Some people may have seen that as an obstacle. Some people may say, but Danielle, how could you ever live with such a strict parent? I would say (laughs) you can only do one major shopping trip four times a year. But she made it work because it taught her to plan and prep and scrimp and primp. And she goes to this place. You've never heard of it. And listen, unless you are the dirtiest, most disgusting, down in the mud hobo. (laughs) It's called Century 21. Can you believe it? She goes, most people love Century 21 because it's affordable, but just as many hate it because their stores are huge and as well organized as my family's junk drawer. So what I think she means there is disorganized. At one point, she talks about the smell of Century 20. I'm like, this is just a regular place that people still go. People go to Nordstrom Rack all the time. Like, It's not crazy to go to these stores. Go to an outlet mall. A lot of people go. I went. I grew up going. To, I was a Daffy's girl. I don't even know if that exists outside of New Jersey. Later, she talks about how the only way to find good overalls is to buy vintage, but some people can't stand the smell of vintage. And I was like, who do you know? Who are the people you're interacting with on a regular basis? Because I actually, th- I genuinely think it's no one. If there's a method to Century 21's madness, most casual shoppers can't discern it, but I've never been a casual shopper. Okay, I understand I'm not a thrift shopper. I don't have the eye. I don't have the patience. I don't have the stamina. I cannot go in and look through racks and find something good. There's something I need to go to those stores where they're like, here's six t-shirts. They are all the same. Pick one of them. And I'm like, thank you. This helps me. Let me try on all six. I just need to see. I'm like, and now I can add this, my collection of 22 other identical Brandy Melville tops. Like I'm not a good shopper. I'm not a fashionista, but I do know that Century 21 is not some like hellhole salvation army pit of clothing where you have to just swim Scrooge McDuck style through the rags <laughs> until you find a treat. I know that it is a normal department store with racks and order and things 
that are in fashion. I mean, they have things that are like currently in fashion that are just like overstocked. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a store. I don't know. I mean, I used to go to Kohl's mostly for most of my shopping and I wouldn't call Kohl's like luxury, but I also wouldn't say that I was like dumpster diving into a pit of hell garments. So basically she says the entire operation was a scavenger hunt. In retrospect, my taste for vintage shopping should come as no surprise. I actually am deeply surprised she's interested in vintage. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen her post vintage clothes as I've clearly always gotten off on the thrill of the hunt. So to her, this is like a good exercise in planning your outfit. She would have to go and find unique pieces that could be versatile for the whole, get this season. Can you imagine wearing one shirt more than once in a season? Pitiful. But when she got a little bit older, she goes to Macy's and she, to prove what a good shopper she is, she has this story. I'll never forget waking up on the morning of prom only to realize that my matching shoes had become a chew toy for our dogs. I knew there was only one place where I was guaranteed to find something that matched Wait, the last minute. The perfect pups that the all-star Bernstein children raised. Chew to shoe. But no, Ashley, listen, prom was that night and what was she going to wear? Luckily, she sped to Macy's, found the perfect nude heels on sale too and made it to my hair appointment. Where could you go that wouldn't have had nude heels? What do you mean? The perfect shoes that matched the your perfect dress? perfect nude heels? You went to find the most regular shoe that's definitely carried at every store that's ever existed? What color was your dress besides any color? <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe that in the nick of time I found something that matched? It was a neutral. <laughs> she also learned how to sew. She loves fashion, blah, 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 blah. All right. And then because of her love of fashion, baby, you guessed it. She got a fashion internship. So when she's just in high school, she gets offered an internship at G3, which I guess owns Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger to Levi's. So a pretty major company. Yeah. So she talks about how she was obsessed with going into Manhattan when she was younger. They lived in Long Island, but you could take the Long Island... Railroad. Express train. Railroad. (laughs) Sure. So she would take the LIRR into the city and she and her friends would go clubbing. She says that they would go into Manhattan with fake IDs, club until they could take the 3.19 a.m. train home. And if you missed that, you would take the 5.19 a.m. train. Our destinations were usually Pink Elephant, Kiss and Fly, or one of the other now defunct clubs on the west side of Manhattan, particularly Chelsea and the Meatpacking Neighborhoods. Most of the places I frequented back then have been since closed, following the footsteps of other famously deceased discotheques. The only thing that remains is Marquee, from which the party has moved on these days unless a famous DJ is video sitting. So many formerly favorite clubs are now populated by the bridge and tunnel crowds, suburbanites who come looking for authentic New York nightlife, but find only themselves. Yeah, as an 18-year-old coming in on the LIRR, they were, as a 16-year-old coming in on the LIRR, they were the absolute target audience, but now it's populated by a bunch of fucking nobodies from Jersey. She gives you the hot take that if you go to One Oak, one of the only clubs left that's still cool, you should get a slice of artichoke pizza, which is some of the worst advice in America. There is no worse slice of pizza than the artichoke pizza. You have to be blacked out to think that that tastes good. It's pizza with a can of soup on top. <laughs> you ever been eating pizza and been like, I wish this pizza came with chowder? <laughs> I do actually feel like that's something that you and only you would have wished for. I'm talking about it and the way I'm getting so hungry right now. <laughs> I know it's disgusting, but you have to be like in a really certain mindset. She does say that you actually cannot have a slice of pizza if you're wearing a super tight dress because you'll risk bloat. But I will say it's like it's an end of night. Like you have to go home, be near a bathroom that you don't share. Like <laughs> I have to say the idea of eating a slice of artichoke pizza and, and then, then walking going into a club. club and doing shots of tequila. <laughs> I feel like it's a jackass prank. It's like so sick in my head. I don't even know. Oh my God. If we thought soup date was bad, 
soup night on the town <laughs> artichokes sloshing about your tummy mixing and mingling with the gin Ugh. oh my god I'm like cranberry and vodka gin and runny pizza <laughs> do not listen to her this is bad possibly like medically malpractice bad advice so basically she has this internship she's in high school i'll remind you she gets to the g3 midtown office the first day i wondered what i was going to do that day how long would it be until my first photo shoot when would I get to have lunch at Balthazar? How long would it be until I meet celebrities? It didn't have to be anyone crazy famous. Leighton Meester would suffice. Uh, Leighton Meester was like the top of her game at this time. I mean, was that when she was making the good girls go bad? She was so famous. I know. And guess what, you guys? She ended up just steaming dresses all day in the fashion closet. Can you believe that a 16-year-old wasn't put in charge of styling photo shoots at a major corporation? She couldn't believe the bitch work, but she thinks the bitch work is really important and... She goes, I've encountered this the most when hiring for We Were What. What we all need at least once in a while is the kind of attitude adjustment that comes with a nice, lowly internship. As for me, whenever I feel myself getting a big head, I simply remind myself that I'm Danielle, the fashion closet intern. I mean, no, I mean, you're you're literally not. That was like a favor to your dad that someone did. And that was just like in no way indicative of who you are as a person. It's just like your job is a transitory label that doesn't define you. You're literally not an intern anymore. You do run your own business. You're not always your lowliest job. Like the fact that you felt that being an intern was like you being put in your place, like that was your place. Where else would your place have been during that time? The only fucking 16-year-old who isn't an intern was like Tavi Gevinson. Yeah, she acts like she was such a warrior for taking it on the chin. She goes, even so, I wouldn't trade a goddamn second of that summer. Sure, it was boring. Sure, I was a glorified and unpaid personal assistant. Literally, you weren't. That is a hard job. You would not have been trusted to be a personal And assistant. you were in no way glorified. They shoved you in a closet and they said, we think you can handle steaming stuff. That's, yeah. There's no glory in it and you don't deserve glory for it. Lesson five. Make the first move. So she... Which I kind of like. She is ballsy. And I will say, if we are to believe how hot she keeps saying all of her own boyfriends are, she does well for herself. Her current boyfriend... So I did a little stalking from the CNBC account, of course, because I can't from my own Claire the Scare account. <laughs> her posts bomb relative to her following, unless it's a picture of her boyfriend. Her boyfriend posts perform 10x what a fashion post does. So she is working as an intern. She's 17 years old. It's the summer before she goes to college and who comes in but this really hot guy who she specifically told not to hook up with. So what does she do? Actually a move that, I, God bless. One thing about this bitch is she is confident. She writes her name and phone number down on a post-it note and walks by his desk and just slaps it on his computer. She leaves work and he texts her later. Yes. So don't worry guys. Michael, the hottie from Syracuse, who's 21, is rich. He invites her out to Soho House and she's like, oh my God, I've never even heard of that. I've only heard of Marquis. But she makes a friend come because she's scared to go on a date alone because she was a kid. So they go, they hit it off. They all end up taking a cab back to Michael's apartment. It turns out he's a New York City boy. And don't worry, she gives two pages of description of his pre-war apartment. His mom's pre-war apartment that he lived in. Michael's home was a classic six in a pre-war doorman building. Its massive windows had unobstructed views of Central Park. Expensive looking artwork hung on the walls. Oriental rugs covered the floor. The entire space screamed old money and culture. Do you want a tour? Michael asked. And she did. Already, I think their entire dynamic is right. Like, I cannot imagine going to somebody's parents' house at 4 a.m. and him being like, do you want to see how much money this is worth? And being like, yes. <laughs> I must know. She talks about going on a couple of dates and she says, I couldn't help but wonder why Michael, this smart, cultured, older guy was into me. And it's like, I don't know, man. Why are any guys who are a little bit older into girls who are way younger and less experienced than them? Because they're bad people. If my internship at G3 was the job that was going to make me a woman, 
then my relationship with Michael was meant to do the same. This is important because she's constantly made a woman. Her next boyfriend makes her a woman. And then I think the boyfriend after that makes her a woman, not to mention her bat mitzvah, which also made her a woman. Yeah. And having sex, which also made her a woman. She's <laughs> a, woman a woman five, five times, times over. over. <laughs> what a woman. <laughs> anyway, she says, Michael was my first true love. No question. Sorry, Jake. He was a savvy older man who showed me a version of New York I did not yet know. She basically talks about how he took her to like a lot of really cool, fancy places. And so for her, true love is like being introduced to the elite Manhattan scene. Lesson six, face the path of most resistance. So then it's time for her to choose where to go to college. And it is hard. Can I read this direct quote? Yes, please. I spent my senior year wrestling with the question, where should I go to college? The decision was so momentous that it paralyzed me. To be a senior in in high school and thinking the next choice I make is the choice that will define the rest of my entire existence. I just like want her to have one unique thought. So she can't decide between NYU and Wisconsin-Madison, which feels very different. She only applied to those two, she says, which part of me doesn't believe at all. Do you think she didn't get into NYU? She says most people apply to like 12 schools to make sure they have a safety net. And she's like, not me. I only applied to NYU and University of Wisconsin-Madison. She says she gets into NYU early decision, but rejects it, which I think is illegal. I thought that was the whole point of early decision is that you have to. But anyway, I wonder if she just didn't get into NYU the first time. That would make more sense to me. She says she ends up going to Madison because she had watched too many episodes of the show Greek, which painted college as a four-year holiday from real life. I will say... Greek is so good. Greek is so good. And I do think letting yourself get over-influenced by Greek is relatable to me. It is. So anyway, she goes to Madison in Wisconsin and it turns out everybody there dresses bad. Even though my social life at Madison was top-notch, my classes definitely weren't. Not because Wisconsin isn't a great school, but because they lack a true fashion program. I mean, then why did you go there? If your goal was to study fashion and you got into NYU, why did you go to the school in the Midwest with no fashion program? She also says that she joined the One Fashion Group, which did an annual fashion show with donated clothes from local boutiques. Thank God Shop Bop is headquartered in Madison, or I don't know what we would have done. Yeah, if I had access to Shop Bop and had to put on a fashion show, you just put clothes on people. That's not what makes it hard. She also says when I asked the head of my program about internships, she explained that a lot of retail majors enjoyed internships at Kohl's whose offices were located in nearby Menominee Falls. There's nothing wrong with Kohl's, but it wasn't exactly my dream employer. I wanted to intern at Chanel, not a department store. If you're trying to learn about fashion business, I do feel like having an experience at Kohl's could have been hugely impactful. So for her to be such a fucking cunt about it, like, sorry, if you worked at Chanel, you were going to be another closet girl. She has this line about the way people dressed in Wisconsin. She says, if I dressed the way I wanted to dress, people would have thought I was crazy. And to me, that is exactly why I know she has no sense of fashion. Because if you have a true sense of style, you can wear whatever you want, wherever you go. And it exudes myself like you when I I go to a wedding in Uggs people are like that's Claire's style (laughs) listen if she wore like cool funky New York clothes in Wisconsin people would have looked at her weird and the fact that she couldn't take that means that she has no true sense of style during this time her and Michael are together but open which is very progressive for 10 years ago She met Michael at an overnight at the Carlisle. He just received a holiday bonus at work and was eager to spoil me in the form of a five-star hotel room. We spent hours listening to live jazz, knocking back dirty martinis at the famous Bemelman's Bar, which was dripping with holiday decorations. I do feel like if I was 18 years old and you were treating me to a fancy night and you were like, we're going to experience live jazz and drink dirty martinis, I would have been like, ugh. I mean, I just like, that's how I know this was written for the Gossip Girl crowd. She wanted to make some 14-year-old girl in Indiana jealous of her the way she felt jealous of 
Blair Waldorf. She has a friend named Chelsea who's going to FIT and living in a walk up in the East Village. And she's like, man, I'm so fucking jealous of Chelsea. So she decides to transfer and none of her credits are going to transfer. So she has to start at square one. Luckily, money is no object. <laughs> one thing that we do have to mention, though, is during her time at Michigan or dur- what have was Madison. Whatever. Yeah. During her time somewhere, she started her first <laughs> blog because she was obsessed with the fashion bloggers there. And so she's created one called Speak of Chic. Why? For no other reason than I like the way that name sounded. Obviously, of course. It exactly describes what it is. It's a fashion blog called Speak of Chic. Speaking of things that are chic. Everything they do, she talks about this flight she takes to Chicago to meet Michael and she goes, we had a perfect long weekend, which included a lingering dinner at a triple Michelin starred Alania. I don't know, just the amount of name dropping, which is specifically to make some 16 year old girl go, wow, true love is constantly going to Michelin star restaurants. You're right, like proper noun everything. Like when she talks about leaving Madison, she goes, so I packed my bags and left State Street behind, yeah. which is just the main street in Madison, Wisconsin, where I finished my marathon. I also want to say that- <laughs> I ran a marathon. Now's not the time, Ashley. <laughs> Do you want to be likable or no? No. I also want to say, so she talks about when she decides to leave for FIT, and so she goes and tells her friends, of course, I expected them to be sad. We were best friends and now we would have to part. Such sweet sorrow. The real problem was that the four of us had already signed a lease for next year's off-campus apartment. I knew it was an inconvenience, but assumed they would ultimately want me to follow my heart. Instead, the girls were furious. Yeah, duh. You're leaving them in a fucking lurch and they're probably going to have to live with a weirdo next year that they had no idea would still actually be better than you. <laughs> She says, I'd gone to college with a capital C, but was there anything else to learn from another three years of drinking PBR in frat house basements? No. Then why did you go there? Yeah, visit a friend on the weekend. Visit a friend on the weekend. Like, you don't have to be like these fucking dirtbags snorting PBR and doing nothing but wearing garbage clothes. Don't go then. Can I tell you, it would really make sense to me that she didn't get into NYU the first time. Me too. I do not believe she got in. If anyone has any access to the NYU admissions office and is willing to do a legal research, (laughs) I would love to know. So she talks about landing in New York City. She calls her friend Chelsea from high school, who she moves in with and goes, Chelsea, of course, already had nine Manhattan months under her belt. She wore cool clothes and regularly dined at fancy restaurants like Minetta Tavern. I don't know anybody who regularly dines at Minetta Tavern except for like Anna Wintour. Nobody regularly dines there. I mean, she talks about how she lived in this walk up. It was like a one bedroom flex with four girls. And it's like, that is what a dorm is. I'm sorry, but sharing a bedroom is a quintessential college experience and the fact that you're acting like you were living in an absolute hellhole, I don't believe you and it's not endearing. I also just like, who are these girls? This is not the normal FIT experience. It's not like every girl at FIT is going to Mineta Tavern weekly. That's a lot of money. Oh my God, this sentence. Chelsea's group seemed so chic and cool, especially compared to me, the Wisconsin transplant. They wore designer clothes, knew all the promoters at Lavo and had a rotating roster of finance guys footing the bill for their nights out. She spends her first couple weeks in New York just kind of bumming around watching Ellen and then picking her boyfriend up at work because she has nothing else to do. And then her dad is able to get her a last second internship at an events company that does cool club events. And would you believe that her boyfriend, the college graduate who started dating an 18-year-old high schooler, yeah, did not like it when she had other things going on? So he's upset that she has less time for him. So she opens up his computer one day, sees an AIM message, shout out to AIM, I miss it. And it turns out that he had been having cyber sex with this girl named Crystal. I've changed a lot of names in this book, but not Crystals. You literally can't make that shit up. Why are we being mean to Crystals? What are you, what's the implication there, Danielle? Anyway, she confronts him about it. 
he obviously can't deny that they've been having video chat sex. She goes, my heart sank. I was stunned. Sure, I knew things weren't great between us, but it seemed like we'd been on an upswing since I started school. Plus, Michael knew what an explosive issue infidelity was for me, given my family history. I love it when people are like, how could you cheat on me when you know how much I didn't want to be cheated on? (laughs) That is something that everyone who gets cheated on says. They're like, you know, I specifically didn't want that. (laughs) So then she talks about how quickly the relationship crumbled. She says a relationship that had taken 16 months to build only took two minutes to end. That's how it happens, baby doll. (laughs) And then she goes, the whole situation was like a fucking Vanessa Carlton song, but without the happy ending. Have you ever listened to a Vanessa Carlton song? Follow your passion. So this is about how she started We Wore What. So she's there at FIT. She becomes an advertising, marketing, and communications major. She's looking around. She's wearing all her cutest little outfits. And would you believe she is the worst dressed person at school? She says she wore like understated chic. And then she got to class and everyone was in maximalist chic. And she's like, I felt like such a loser. So she decides that she needs a camera. So she'd been blogging a little bit, writing her thoughts on grout fits, she says. And then she decides to go to B&H which she like illustrates how to get there. It's very Anthony Kiedis cupping drugs. She like really gives you the directions from FIT's campus to B&H, a photography store. And she gets a camera and she starts taking pictures of people on campus and including them in her blog. So she gets her camera. She starts taking photos of people on campus to add to her blog and talk about the style that she admires. And then she starts going to fashion week and standing outside and taking pictures at like street style photography at fashion week and emulating the outfits. She's like, I wasn't going to be able to interview Chloe Sevigny, but I could make her outfit more accessible. And so she, I mean, once again is really illustrating how she herself has no sense of style, but she's able to recognize that girl is cool. So I should replicate her outfit. And that is how her blog blew up. I also love this. So she starts a whole new blog, obviously. She goes, for some reason, I'll never quite understand. My fingers entered wewarewhat.com as if they already knew what to type. We, because we, the girls of New York City, wore because it's what we wore that day. What? Because I would detail every aspect of their ensembles. Phew, the URL is available. We do not need an explanation for why you named your fashion blog We Wore What. It is so literal. You don't have to, ex- can you imagine? It being is like- also quite literally because who, what, where was already a big fashion blog. Yes. Like you just took a thing that already existed. There were like eight formulas for creating, not even eight. There was three formulas for creating the name of a fashion blog. You picked one of them. I love that she thinks she has to explain the inner meaning of we wore what. We, us, <laughs> wore the things we're wearing. What, what the things we're wearing that we, us people are doing. <laughs> I'll never know why I picked that. I know why I could explain it to you because it's a literal definition and a pithy way of saying what it is. It's not even pithy. I remember always when I first heard about her, I was like, that name just like doesn't roll for me. I think it rolls. I'll give her that it rolls. Anyway, so she starts posting photos of her own outfits. So she realizes that taking photos of herself and being able to explain where she got everything from helped her blog. It got more engagement that way. I knew that I had to up my photography game. My photos needed to look more professional, which meant I had to learn how to edit. So it starts growing. She has an internship at this place called Now Manifest, a curated platform that consolidated leading fashion blogs in one place with people like Brian Gray Yambau, Rumi Neely, and Elin Kling. So she is able to meet fashion bloggers through this new internship. And then her boss is like, I know you're a fashion blogger. You should enter for this contest. And she's able to win it and do this summer blogger tour with Amy Song from Song of Style. 
I also want to point this out. So she goes, I've always been a fearless networker. So when Elin brought me somewhere as her plus one, I was able to speak to people like Nina Garcia, the editor in chief of Elle, who I now consider a friend without fright. Even at star studded fashion shows, there was never anyone too big or too powerful for me to approach. And I do want to give her credit because her lack of self doubt, her delusion, her feeling of entitlement is what drove her to success. And I wish we all had a little bit more of that. I would be more successful if I felt that I didn't have to earn things or wasn't insecure about being good enough or didn't, you know, respect a craft of any kind. Yeah, this was a chapter that I actually really like or like a section that I think she actually offers like a hint of good advice. She talks about how she would get invited to these parties. And then she talks about how once she was able to get a peek at the guest list before events, she would look these people up and come with ways to have conversations and relate to them so that she could network harder. That is like very effective. She goes, another thing I learned that year was that data would be my greatest asset. I taught myself how to track the number of impressions and views on every post using Google Analytics. I created custom bit.ly links that track click-throughs to prove the extent of my reach. As somebody who has used Google Analytics, what it entails is having a dashboard that tells you the numbers. Yeah. There's not a lot to it. One night, she's out with her friend Jess, and I just have to read this line. We were at a party with one of her coworkers at Hotel Chantel on the Lower East Side. The venue has since lost its cachet, but back then it was the place to be. I love that she's like constantly giving you the ups and down values of places. It's not just like the proper nouns, but it's letting you know if you could still go there. And by the way, anywhere she went, you can't go anymore because it's not cool anymore. And if you went now and tried to be her now, you're a loser. Do you know what place will never lose its cachet? What? Your own backyard. So true. Home is where the heart is. The place to be. And with a solo stove, there is nowhere better to be than your own backyard. Life's best moments happen around a roaring campfire. And to not have to do laundry that night to get the campfire smell out of your clothes, that baby is a dream come true. Solo stove takes the classic campfire, takes those fumes down lower than you can even believe, and... I don't know. You can just enjoy a s'more in absolute peace with the people you love. My dad is a huge solo stove fan. I'll take photos of mine in my backyard. It is fun. It is fun. I mean, there's nothing you and I love more than just hanging out in the backyard with people we like. I would choose that over almost any place ever. I love an around the fire chat, a late night beach chat around the fire on a summer night. The solo stove is made with stainless steel construction designed to regulate airflow and burn efficiently so you have not only the perfect fireplace but it's also gorgeous like it looks beautiful in your backyard there's so little smoke you'll wonder how there's so much fire it is the perfect catalyst for getting outside and spending more time with family and friends you can build lasting memories around the solo stove fire pit right now get big discounts on all fire pits during solo stove summer sale and use the promo code worm at solostove.com for an extra ten dollars off that's solostove.com promo code worm for ten dollars off on top of their incredible summer sale discounts while you're making memories maybe your memories require a big financial investment every yeah. now and then a big vacation a big experience an unexpected bill that you don't want to make a big memory. <laughs> if you're going to have a solo stove, you might as well buy a home. And if you're going to buy a home, you're going to need to know your credit. Credit Karma can help you find the best option for a personal loan, whether you're consolidating debt, whether you're looking to make a big purchase, no matter what your financial goals, Credit Karma has personalized loan offers tailored to you. Using your credit data, Credit Karma will show you your chances of getting approved for personalized loans so you can choose the one that is perfect for your situation. 
Comparing loan offers on Credit Karma is 100% free and it won't affect your credit score and it could save you money. With Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Go to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. So speaking of taking care of your future, Danielle Bernstein credits herself as one of the first bloggers to really prioritize Instagram. And she may very well have been. I actually do think it's like a first or best situation. And I think she was very a very early adopter to Instagram. She says that she was just posting on Instagram for fun, like a blurry photo of her birthday, whatever, the way we were all posting in sepia-toned Valencia filters, etc. But then one day she posted a photo of her and her friend at a birthday party, both wearing black dress and boots, And people were like, where's your dress from? And she was like, wait a second. Could there be business here? If you look at the strategic decisions I made during the early years of my blog, going from street style photos to pictures of myself, focusing so much on Instagram instead of the blog, it seems like I had a plan. In reality, I was flying by the seat of my pants, paving my path in an industry that was still mostly undefined. Hell, I was helping to pave the industry. I believe that you didn't have a plan. Also, I will say it's not like man repeller where I do feel like her strength was in her writing. Her strength was in the fact that she was putting together like very attainable outfits and making them look like a cool New York City girl was wearing those outfits. And she was just doing it. So much of life is doing it. Yeah. So it wasn't until the end of 2012 that I started dedicating more time to my Instagram than my blog. She's still going to FIT and at first she was trying to make them both work and then slowly but surely as her Instagram and blog picked up, she stopped going to more and more classes. She's like, I need to take a semester off and see where I can get this blog going and she's already starting to make a little bit of money but not enough that it's an actual job. And so she gets two part-time jobs in fashion-related situations so that she can borrow clothes, essentially. She works at Reformation and she works at another store. Necessary clothing. Yeah. I wonder how long she worked there. I can't imagine for more than three months. Yeah. She also says it's great because it allowed her to switch shifts all the time. I wonder if she went like once a week. So really what she does is she goes to talk to her dad. She prepares a PowerPoint presentation for how she thinks this should go, like the potential for her career if she really dedicates time to it. And she basically says, I want to leave school will you still help support me financially so her dad agrees to help her everything is like a thing she's a little bit afraid to tell her parents and then them embracing whatever she wants with open arms and then her being like actually that wasn't that hard so her dad is paying her rent and she's earning a little bit of money to buy clothes and then she's posting constantly Her next chapter is about Mo. Don't be afraid to get help. Maureen was her first intern that is now her COO. She's been with her for the entire business. My blog took off after I left FIT and I was able to focus my attention on it. My Instagram started attracting thousands of new followers each week. She has a few phrases in here like dating this person made me a woman. My Instagram started attracting thousands of followers each week. And I'm like, I thought that had already happened. There's a couple things in here that starts making her Instagram attract thousands of followers each week. While the high speed growth was certainly exciting and it meant brands were starting to take me more seriously. It meant there was more work to be done than I could handle on my own. I decided to hire an intern. Then like one page later, she's talking about finding Mo, the perfect intern. And she says, since we didn't have that much to do, it didn't really matter what time Mo and I started work in the morning. She does say that's like very, for the first few months, when it was busy, it was busy. And when it wasn't, there was much to do. So they would just hang out. And of course, there's problems when your employee is your friend and they're going out. She says, since we were what paid Mo a small stipend, I wonder if it was like $10 a day, but not enough to live on. I even helped her get a hostessing gig at a downtown club called Gilded Lily. Although my life looked glamorous on Instagram, the truth is Mo and I spent most of the time in yoga pants. We watched a lot of daytime television in my apartment, planning our entire day around the Ellen DeGeneres show and Bethany. 
So she uses Mo. Mo's an unpaid intern, as we've said, and they start butting heads. I'm sure it got to Mo that Danielle was making all the money, was one year older than her, and she was doing just as much work. So finally, Mo does a semester abroad, and when she comes back, Danielle realizes how desperate she is to use her and hires her as a full-time employee. So they get started. Now we're getting into the rise of We Were What and how you have to know your value. She talks about really drumming up worth from the inside. She talks about how she loves to go to fashion shows and she doesn't always get invited. And at the beginning, it upset her, but then she got invited to everything. And now she doesn't even want to go because it's such a fucking scramble and she doesn't even care. And she says, I have so much more to give than just being a street style star, or a front row regular. I have a new way of doing business. I have a reach and a deep connection with my followers. Sure. So she says she doesn't need the industry to validate her with important seats at a fashion show. She knows that she can shill shit. And then this is the thing that really bothers me. And she talks about like being dressed for fashion shows and how it can be really disheartening because the brands will send over a size zero or two. And she says, I am not a sample size. My body isn't built that way. Unable to fit into the pants or skirts. I'm often left with loose fitting dresses or tops. It's no one's fault, but that doesn't make it any less difficult. I mean, it is someone's fault. It's fashion's extreme lack of inclusivity that goes all the way to the top and penetrates like every single level of fashion. Like it is someone's fault, but she says it has made me feel insecure. No woman wants to be too big for anything. I don't feel any compassion for her because all she does is actively perpetuate unrealistic body standards by lying about what her body looks like constantly. There was an Instagram account that started called We Photoshopped What that would post side by sides of the Getty image photos of her versus the version that she posted on her own Instagram. And I think that if she had just dug her heels in and been like, listen, I am not a sample size, but I am hot and wear cool clothes. I think she would have been genuinely successful, not like her own fake successful. Like I think that she could have done a lot for people and she doesn't even have that interesting of a body type. Like she's not outside of the norm in any way, but I do think the way that she's continued to perpetuate these systems and then she'll like try to show like a fake flap of vulnerability being like it actually was really hard for me. This is one of the questions I have for what does it mean to be an influencer? Because if you do build a platform and you do develop some sort of power in the fashion industry and then you use it to do nothing and complain about your own life experience while doing nothing to help anyone who has a more extreme version of that problem than you, then I don't have any respect or interest in it. No, that's fair. And the last thing you should do is come to your memoir and say, do you know how hard it was for me to feel like an outsider? As a size four. In the fashion industry and then continue to lie and misrepresent yourself and uphold these exact standards that you claim feel oppressive to you. Yeah, So then we finally get to lesson 15, intro continued, elevator hunk. She tells just another story about how she hooks up with, there's this hot guy in her West Village apartment. And would you believe he's an Italian model and he has a puppy and they go out and she hits on him first and they go for a walk with their dogs and it starts pouring down rain and they make out in the rain and they have perfect sex. And it just goes to show you that her life is better than yours. I think that that's the... Yeah, so this is the kickoff of her Samantha Summer and the reason she decided to write this very book. I will say, as someone with a puppy, to go for a walk with a stranger and their dog and then be able to just like make out in the rain under scaffolding. I'm sorry, Bug would have been shitting herself, jumping up against the wall, like losing her mind. Bug is a cock block. Bug is an absolute cock block. Anyway, this is the start of her Samantha Summer and then she meets her next boyfriend. She's set up with this guy who Rick. 
She goes, Rick is one of those Manhattan men with too much money and no real work ethic. He was both well-mannered and well-groomed. His nails often had a more recent manicure than my own. Then Rick invited me to spend Labor Day weekend on his parents' 200-foot yacht. And well, I couldn't help but swipe right on that situation. So she brings her two friends. She loves a rich man. She loves it. She like truly is like my first love is wealth and my second love is a man who has it. (laughs) So she shows up with her two friends to go on, I guess, a first date with a guy with a yacht. Rick appeared in a panic. Oh no, oh no. Could you please take off your shoes? My parents just refinished the teak deck. And then she gets the ick. And with that single sentence, I knew Rick wasn't my guy. Yuck. I just want to say, even I know you don't wear shoes on a yacht, you dumb bitch. (laughs) Haven't you watched Below Deck? I mean, for somebody who wants to like have a yacht husband, you should know the yacht rules and the yacht rules is no shoes. Anyway, luckily... Even you know that, right, Ashley? I actually didn't, but I have never been on a yacht, nor do I think I'll ever be on a yacht. You've never even seen Below Deck? I don't feel like yacht vacation is my dream vacation. Okay, but what about I'm like not a, a yacht boat girl. I don't like, like boats, really. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that about you. I love a boat. I don't know. Boats feel like porta-potties to me. I'm like, I don't like this. We're like at sea. We're trapped. It's sloshy. It's not... I, I'm a beach girl. I love a beach. You love land hoy. I'm a, I'm a land bitch. You know me, I'm reptilian. And you know I don't like fish either. To me, a boat is a big hot rock and it's perfect for my lizard body. <laughs> <laughs> On this boat, luckily, because Rick discusses her, is Rick's college friend, Alex. And Alex is hot and nice and cool. Alex was tall, like six feet five, dark and handsome. He even had a thick beard. And then it turns out Alex is perfect. He's so Alex polite. Alex is Hagrid. <laughs> Even though she's there with this guy who's hosting her and her two friends, she likes this guy. She doesn't hook up with Rick so that she can date Alex. Her and Alex start dating long distance. He's from Chicago, which, black, am I right? Blech. She doesn't mind it because she's like, he's the king of Chicago and I'm his international queen. She says, oh my God, I have to read this line. She talks about how on the boat, right? So the first day she realizes Rick is not for her and she becomes infatuated with Alex and she doesn't know what to do about it because she feels like it'd be quite rude to flirt with Alex, even though she's there to be set up with Rick, which like good call. That would have, that would be rude. She did anyway, but she says, I woke the next morning feeling awkward and wondering how I could avoid Rick until Monday. I went to the kitchen for breakfast, ready to drown my humiliation in hash browns. Yes, I was so upset that I ate starches in the same day that I had to be in a bikini. Now, thankfully, I have infrared saunas and lymphatic drainage massages as provision. Thankfully. Thus began our three-year relationship with me finally, finally finding a nice guy. It took one parental divorce, dozens of meaningless flings, and several failed relationships before I decided I was worthy of someone that nice. But when I finally did, well, there was no going back. If I was going to be the most successful fashion blogger in the world, then I didn't have time to waste on assholes. I needed someone who would support me and help me grow, treat me like his queen. And that, at least for the time being, was Alex. I mean, she was 21. She's 21 and she's like, finally, after my parents got divorced and I dated two guys, I was ready to settle down with a kind man. It's very bachelor. Like, when is it my turn for love? So he ends up moving to New York City after they were dating for six months and she hates that. She goes, of course I wanted to see Alex more often, but I was also worried about the pressure this move would put on her new love. She's mad because when he gets there, he doesn't know a lot of people in New York. Alex spent every night at my apartment. Never in my life have I yearned so desperately for a girl's night out. Even the idea of a solo trip to Equinox started to feel like an exotic vacation. She says all of his friends became her friends. Her favorite places became his favorite places. All this seemed natural and normal to a point. We were dating. 
But she did not like it. She says, there's a big difference between loving someone and being in love with them. And I think deep down, I always knew he wasn't the one, but I ignored my gut. I hadn't met my life coach yet who has been transformative for me. And it wasn't until I met her, Stacy, that I started exploring my insecurities and working to repair them. So she was like insecure about ever being single. So that's why she stayed with Alex, who she didn't love. And also because her mom specifically said, find a guy who loves you more than you love him. And she was like, great. I don't love Alex that much. So then she goes on to tell this whole story about like at one point in the relationship, she was worried she was going to cheat on him. And she just did not like being with him. She hated that he didn't have any hobbies but her, which is fair enough. That is like a valid thing to not like about someone. I think to be like, listen, I'm like really obsessed with my work and the fact that you just like have a job that you go to and then come home to me. I want you to be passionate. She wanted him to be passionate about something and he was only passionate about her and that weirded her out, which is weird. Yeah, and also I do think she, which look, you're allowed to want what you want in a partner. She does want a partner who is going to show her the world. Yes. And you you can't if you're from Chicago. No, I mean, what world? Pizza world? Anyway, so when he turns 27, he's like, we need to take next steps. Let's live together. And she goes, I should have said no, but this was the first time in a long time that Alex showed any sort of backbone. It was just enough of a display of confidence that I thought I could convince myself that he might be becoming the kind of guy who would challenge me. So they move in together. And after one month, she basically is like, so are you going to get a hobby now? And he's like, what do you mean? You're my hobby. And so she breaks up with him on the spot. Yeah, I think this was their dinner celebrating having moved in together. So then he just moves out right away. And then they stay together like loosey goosey. They stay together in kind of like a casual situation. They're like still dating sort of, but they went from living with each other for three days to now not living together anymore. So then she gets back to her business. At this point, she has now become what she calls a macro influencer. I think she has hit the 500,000 follower mark Mm -hmm. and brands are taking notice. She has a deal with Topshop where she does necklaces for them. And then she talks about when she started launching her own shoe line. And it came because she went to Lollapalooza and couldn't find the perfect Chelsea boot. So a man that she met at a now deceased club called Fat Baby, she meets him. He has a shoe, like a made to order shoe company in Manhattan. They pair up. She makes five kinds of shoes. They sell them. It sells out. Everything goes great. Run 2 comes along. So he really cheapens the quality of the shoes. Initially, they're working with a factory in Italy using like genuine Italian leather and they're really nice shoes. And then he's like, we can move these operations and make these shoes for way cheaper and make them way shittier. She claims that he never told her. And she also claims to have not had access to any of the back end of their website. So none of the Shopify statistics, she like does not actually know how much money the company brought in. She also says that when she found out that they were making worse quality shoes, she said, what were the specifics around our sales on the first collection? More importantly, what were our costs of production? If the second collection was cheaper to manufacture, could we lower the price point from 350 to 280? She claims she was putting the customer first, but of course, Seth didn't. Because of that, on the second round of shoes, people were complaining that their orders never showed up, zippers were breaking, the shoes were bad quality. Everyone complained. It was so bad that she got out of her contract and the third round of shoes was never even made. She also says she never made any money because the amount of money she made from the first order of shoes she put towards bootstrapping, no pun intended, the second order where she lost money because they got into a fight and she never found out how much they made. And it was such a shit show. And then of course they never made a third. So she goes, well, I learned a lot from that company. We've shuttered it, but basically it's all his fault. All his fault. How to say no to money is one of the hardest things I've had to learn, but it's the only way to remain authentic and protect my brand. She also says, I should have been smarter about picking my partner. So how do I do things differently today? I make sure my contracts give me full control every step of the way. Like, okay, so now you're taking ownership of the design stealing that you do currently. 
I design the way anyone designs. I take photos of other things I like and make them. (laughs) So now we are back in relationship land. So as the archive shoes is fucking up, she also, the relationship with Alex is crumbling and she meets this guy named Rob. The thought of being alone was terrifying. A lot of people think success makes it easier to be single, but I actually think it's harder for a myriad reasons that I won't get into here. Where would you get into them? I don't know. This is your book about your success and your love life. It seems like you should definitely address how success has affected your love life. Yeah. What are we talking about then? I would have really loved her to get into that because I think that that actually is a really interesting topic. I will say there's no way she could have handled it in a way that wouldn't have made us hate her. Of course. But I still would have liked to see her try. (laughs) Anyway, so she meets this guy, Rob, because she's talking about her, she's complaining about her love life at Coachella and she meets these people who are like, we know the perfect guy for you. He's an asshole. And she's like, oh, I love that. So I just want to take us back real quick. Page 149. It took one parental divorce, dozens of meaningless flings, and several failed relationships before I decided I was worthy of someone that nice. And when I finally did, well, there was no going back. Skip ahead to the asshole. So they finally meet up at the flower shop. They hook up at flower shop. And then she's like, we can't hang out anymore until I'm officially broken up with my actual boyfriend. And so then they like kind of keep in touch, whatever. And then eventually one day he's like, I can't really be friends with you. I like you. And then she is like, oh, that makes sense. So she shows up at his house in the Hamptons. He wasn't in the city, but had moved into his house in the Hamptons that he had gotten all on his own. I remember thinking that kind of independence was so sexy when he first told me about it. That kind of wealth is so sexy when he first told me about it. It is so random for a single 35-year-old man to have a house in the Hamptons. Yeah. That's like really, I've never heard of that before. So they get together. It's beautiful. The first few weeks are pure bliss. Cut to 18 months later, I had not found my person. In retrospect, it's obvious how Rob was not the guy for me. He was sexy. He was older. He appeared to have his shit together. But appearances can be deceiving, especially if you keep your eyes shut and ignore the warning signs. Rather than blabber on and on about what went wrong with Rob, which would bore you guys to, and tear me apart, I'll just distill our almost two-year relationship into a list of red flags. I have to say, like everything that I think is interesting, which is her shitting on people and telling me why her parents broke up, all the good gossip, she is like, well, I won't get into that. And I'm like, Why? Just tell me. I mean, it is pretty clear in these bullet points what went wrong. So first of all, I made too many excuses for him. So she says he was really close with his family. So he never did anything with her family and she would always make excuses about it. He avoided her friends. He thought her friends were immature. And she was like, now I realize that if you're dating an older guy who thinks all of your friends are immature losers, he probably thinks you're an immature loser. She also says his criticism wasn't constructive. He would criticize her fashion blogging all the time and at first it was like constructive criticism and then it devolved into just like he was mean. He was just a mean guy. He would be mean to her about not having a job with any purpose or reason. He called it lowbrow and stupid. I mean, fuck Rob. This is like the only time I've been on her side. He was controlling. She wasn't allowed to put up sexy photos even of her in a bikini when she was launching a bikini line. And he didn't show up. He never came to events with her and the one time she wanted him to, he didn't. They break up twice and she meets Melissa Wood of Melissa Wood Health who helps her get her shit together along with her life coach, Stacy. I needed to learn how to be alone happily before I could consider dating again. And through research, Rob broke up with her in November, 2018. I found a 2021 January post that said happy two years to her current boyfriend, which means that she got together with her new boyfriend in January of 2019, which would be two months later. Sure. Melissa and Stacy are really good at their jobs. She found perfect happiness in her I mean, soul. How long does it take to be, to learn to be alone happily? Happily. <laughs> if you have Melissa and Stacy on your side, two months. Anyway, so she talks about the way 
the job she's in can mess with your head, which like, again, she references how the pressures of your body can be really complicated. And she says, I wasn't self-conscious about my weight growing up, but had become that way in my 20s. I grew obsessed with photo editing tools that I could use to make my thighs a little thinner or my arms a little more sculpted. And so that's where she admits to tiny, tiny, tiny little bouts of Photoshop, which once again, if you look into it, the bouts are not tiny. And she's still doing them. And she's still doing them. I started to feel like the real me just wasn't good enough. Putting myself in front of 2 million people every day was my choice, but that didn't make it easy. Hateful comments would come at me from all different angles. And I mean, we know how hurtful it can be. Like it is really complicated. It is really difficult to be like, I made this choice, but people are really mean about it. And it does make you self-conscious. But again, my problem is that she's just perpetuating it. Also just that then she keeps talking about her authenticity and the way that people love that she's being authentic and vulnerable and real. And then here's something she absolutely only semi-cops to and perpetuates. Then she talks about starting her overall line. It's just so boring. She does it exactly how you think it goes. She made some mistakes, but it's fine now. So then she tells the story of a twist of fate about when she went on the world's worst influencer trip. She says, for the sake of transparency, I now make more than $10,000 per post. But in this situation, she was convinced to do this incredible... PR vacation for free if she got to bring a friend. She gets there and turns out the boat's small and it sucks. She would have had to share a room. I don't know. It was just like gross. And so she just doesn't go on the trip. She gets off the boat and is like, we're not doing this. And then she meets the owner of the brand. Yeah, the brand was Onia at Acme of We Met at Acme fame. And he's like, are you the same Danielle Bernstein who ditched our boat trip? I'm Nathan, the owner of Onia. In that case, I've got a bone to pick with you. And he goes, the palm print one piece that you posted for us sold out almost immediately. Now there's a three month long wait list. Have you ever thought about designing a line of swimsuits? In her step up to partner with better people, she partners with the people who bamboozled her into a dingy, shitty trip. The boat of Ashley's nightmare. The boat of my absolute hellscape. She goes, I, for one, have always tried to be transparent. That's just irrelevant to anything else I'm about to say, but I thought that was a funny line. Anyway, she talks about after the swimsuit line did so well, she doubled down and started making all of her stuff with them. And she has this funny phrase. She goes, I also demand to be involved when it comes to pricing. I get a lot of clothes for free, but I'm no stranger to overpaying. And now that I'm so fluent in production, I know just how little it actually costs brands to manufacture. More often than not, we're paying for the label. I want to make money, but also need to feel confident that I'm asking my customers to pay fair prices. That a full suit from our brand only costs $200 because the quality demands it, not because I demand it. Just sit there and say, I know how little it costs to make clothes. That's why I'm asking for $200 for a bathing suit. Is Truly incomprehensible. How does she have those two sentences next to each other? Do not sit there and say, hey, it costs nothing to make this garbage. That's why I'm asking you for only $200. There's no way that she's making good quality bathing suits. These aren't speedo for the Olympics. I mean, this is the very brand that sent her into a dumpster boat. Anyway, she's saying that she sold out all of her products all three times she released. It's going great. She says that they made a million dollars and it's like, well, it's not that hard to make a million dollars when each bathing suit costs a million dollars. You sold one bathing suit. Congratulations. To yourself, probably. (laughs) She talks about why she's seen so much success. She says she likes to include her followers in the design process with her current fashion lines. I have always felt like the customers are more likely to buy when they feel invested in the creation of the product. I post just enough content that I don't overexpose unreleased products, which can cause copycats or worse, kill the buzz. God forbid someone copy her work. Copy it back. Heaven forbid her original designs be stolen. 
Remember where you came from. That's lesson 26. It was a cold morning in April, 2019. The kind of day when you wake up and your apartment floor is as cold as the glacier. And so her agent Jen calls and says, do you remember all the stories you told me about growing up shopping at Macy's? I did. I also recalled a number of FIT afternoons spent at the Midtown Macy's. So she partners with Macy's. She talks about how she negotiates twice for a great deal. She makes almost a million dollars with Macy's, gets a huge collab for a full year of partnership. And then she goes, I'm still in the early stages of designing the first collection. The details have to remain top secret until it's released in the spring, right before this book comes out. Here's what I can say. I'm beyond excited to introduce a line of affordable, ready-to-wear clothing, everything from dresses to suits to blouses. The collection will also have plus sizes, a category I've yet to tackle. I don't know anything about fashion. I've never shopped plus sizes, but is that a category in itself? Like, Why wouldn't it just be the clothes but made bigger? Why wouldn't that just be like more size inclusivity? I don't understand why plus size fashion would be a whole different category. Just like make the shirts more sizes. She says, working with Macy's is the ultimate way to return to my roots, to the Danielle Bernstein presented in the early chapters of this book. I haven't always been the glamazon I am or pretend to be today, and that's okay. Would you call her a glamazon? I really feel like her appeal to anyone that she genuinely appeals to is just that she is a regular girl, but more pristine. Like there's more tailoring. There's more editing. Her photos are sharp. Also the way that she's just like, God, Macy's, I would never shop there, but there's some regos like the old me. (laughs) She's like not nice about Macy's. I also have to laugh at this. I've decided to call the collection Danielle Bernstein. The name was extremely important to me. Why? Wait. Her name is Danielle Bernstein. (laughs) The main reason I wanted to put my own name on the brand, however, is to pay homage to my personal history, to the teenage Long Islander who spent so many days scouring the suburban store for the perfect dress to wear to the high school dance or the perfect sweater to wear for the homecoming game. Macy's literally was my adolescence in a nutshell. I am obsessed with having to explain why your name on your line is important. Like, what if I was just like, Ashley, I have this idea for a stage name. I'm thinking about going to Claire Parker. Claire is kind of like an homage to what people called me growing up when they knew me well. And then Parker is an homage to like my family name and where I came from. Claire Parker. I think it would just be really cool to every time I hear my name be called to be like, that is a representation of me. (laughs) You don't have to explain these things to us, Danielle. We get it. Anyway, the last chapter is a plug for her app. It's called Mo Assist. And I think it's now defunct but it was an app that she created to streamline the influencer pipeline. She talks about how difficult it was every day. And so she goes through how difficult it is being an influencer. And I do get that there's a lot of admin and she's like, first the deals come in and then we organize the deals and then we do the deals and then we have to make sure we get paid. So, I mean, there is a lot of admin, but she goes every week at our office starts with the mo checking that notebook for whatever is on the agenda that week. If it sounds complicated, that's because it is. It's a convoluted process involving lots of different people. Jen, Mo, my assistant, and platforms, Excel, GCal, Mo's Notebook. I'm sorry, but an Excel spreadsheet and a Google Calendar, that's not complicated. That's what you're trying to replace out here with your app. So she created an app that I went to the website. It was $27.99 a month for influencers to streamline their processes and their Instagram account has not posted a photo since 2021 spring. Damning. And that's how she ends it with Mo, the now defunct Mo. Well, also, I want to say that she paints this app as her way of giving back to the influencer community. She's like, we have to support each other, us influencers. That's why I created an app that you can pay me for. 
Through it all, I've realized that I really do have a responsibility to support my industry. It's been so good to me. I have learned so much from my years as an influencer, but all the knowledge in the world means nothing unless you're willing to share it. And that's how the book ends. Except for the postscript. Hey guys, it's me. Hey guys, Danielle here. I've been dying to talk to you this entire time, but everyone, my co-writer, my editor, my publisher told me not to break the fourth wall. What was she doing if not talking to us? I don't know, but also I do think what she means by fourth wall is that she wasn't allowed to write anything. I do believe she wrote this part by herself. Yeah. And the rest was written by her publisher, her editor, her co-writer. So why did I write this? I wrote it as much for me as I wrote it for you guys. Just another step in my quest to become my best self. Wait, so for us, you're becoming your best self. Thank the hard you. work started about five years ago when another romantic relationship fell apart. Okay. And then she met her life coach. I don't. So where am I now? At 27 years old, I have finally found a man who is both nice and challenges me at the same time. Our relationship is easy, healthy, and exactly as it should be. I'm really hoping he's the one. To date, they actually started dating one month before me and Mac. <gasps> to date, they are not engaged. Damning. Then she asks you to share your tales. I hope you feel closer to me after reading my story. I hope you know that I'm more than just we were what. I'm also a collection of expensive experiences in restaurants. She doesn't say that. <laughs> I'm Danielle Bernstein, the Long Island girl who once dreamed of making it big in New York City. This is not a fashion story. It's just my story. Thank you, Danielle. Ashley. Yes, Claire. Final thoughts. My final thoughts are that I do think she is both the start and the end of the most toxic phases of the influencer cycle. And I'm interested to see where we as a culture go next. I hope we learn things. I don't know that we will because I've been in the comment sections on the internet, but I do hope that this is not a fashion story. It's a cautionary tale. What are your final thoughts? Okay. So my final thoughts are, if I didn't know anything about her outside of this book, I would just kind of be in awe of this book because I don't find this book particularly offensive. I've just never read a book as an adult that was meant for children. It really is an easy read. It took me maybe two and a half hours to read the whole thing. Yeah. It does exactly what it wants to do, which is if you were 14 and didn't know any better, you would be so jealous of her. She really lays out this glamorous life plan for some girl who loves, I don't know. It was like interesting because it was so clear who it was for, like herself at sleepaway camp when she was 12. That being said, it is just kind of incredible knowing what I know about her that she had the balls to write this book. I know. She's so phony. She is so built up on nothing. I, I mean, we're about to do a deep dive into that credit card she came out with. We're going to go to all those stores and ask if anybody has ever used it. Like the way that she just keeps churning out product after product that fails after fails and like everyone's onto her and she's so- And then she just still like- Ignores it to hell and confidently keeps on posting the same photoshopped images. I'm kind of blown away by people who cannot be beaten down by society. I'm yeah. both afraid of them and in awe of them. She's like Chrissy Teigen for the, the Long Island set. The Long Island set. So not a care in the world reading this book. As someone who like reads a lot of books, it was kind of nice to read something that you could read in 20 minutes without a brain cell being put to work. It is just like an absolute beach read, but it is about a person and you're just like, man, if I could put out of my brain that you exist, this is kind of fun. I mean, there is kind of something fun. It was like a long day in the life TikTok. And I was like, oh, Hotel Chantel, I know that place. Oh, Golden Lily, I knew that place. Oh, I just, okay, I haven't thought. Like, it's kind of fun just to see all these places in New York City just listed. It's so meaningless. It's so empty. As somebody who doesn't put their personal stock in like being valued that way, it is kind of like guiltless fun. It's very yeah. much like goop. It's like reading goop for a 27-year-old. It's just fucking nonsense consumerist mm. nonsense she is things 
this week on the Patreon, you guys, we will be doing the Daniel Bernstein deep dive, the follow up. We'll get into all of the scandals, all of the stealing, all of the like the online hate, the photoshopping. We will do a follow up on her credit card. Check it out. If you have hot tips, let us know. If you have thoughts, let us know. We love you guys. And most of all, we love our five star reviewers. Thank you to Trump's app sucks. Trump and everything he touches turns to suck. Irma Gerda. Oh my God. I appreciate your review. Mers life. Baby, tell me how to live it. And I'll join you in that Mers life. KS squints. K squints. And I'm not wearing my glasses, so I'm squinting right back at you, baby. Emily Eggle. I'll give you my A and you can fly like a damn eagle, baby. H Mackenzie 7. Um, you know how much Claire loves a Mackenzie. Seven times, I would say. Goat cheese girly. Baby, spread that on a cracker. Let's make a cheese board. Let me know when and where. Test 2121. And afterwards, we'll go to Vegas and play blackjack because you seem lucky as hell. Bop till I drop. Baby, let's fucking boogie. Kimbo yo. Can't wait to limbo with Kimbo. McKizzle 15 for shizzle, McKizzle. Comfort music. I fucking love the comfort of music. Chicago 460. Ugh, I wish we could hang out in Chicago 460 days a year. Prudence the frog. My dad calls me Prudence the turtle, though. So we're practically cousins. Holly hearts. I hearts you back. Ash M. Long 6. You know I have a long amount of love for a fellow Ash. C. Voss 0904. I see you. I appreciate you. I adore you. And that's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you.